Um, to introduce Dr. Cohen to us today is his colleague, Brian Remillard, our colleague. Brian, of course, is the Section Chief in Nephrology and Hypertension, and Brian is an Associate Professor of Medicine. Brian, come tell us about your previous co-fellow. Well, it's a pleasure to have Rob Cohen here. Rob uh, and I were co-fellows back in 1990, and uh, it was the privilege of my life, actually, looking back to, to actually be a co-fellow with Rob. It was a uh, I mean, it was a tough fellowship, and Rob was uh, intellectually, you know, very engaged in nephrology, but also turned out to be an incredibly compassionate human being. And uh, I've, I've really, uh, uh, you know, reflected back on on on, on that time. And, and um, but interestingly, as we were both fellows together, I, I, we had dinner last night. I can't remember having a discussion with a patient about starting dialysis. I don't. Know if you remember that time, but it seemed like we would just go and put a line in and start people and not think about it very much. And you know, Rob has spent his career. I mean, early on you did a lot of research, but then later uh, you became very interested in education of fellows, and you've spent your time uh, working on that. And then most recently, he became interested in these complicated, difficult discussions about starting dialysis, and and actually developed a program to teach fellows how to have those discussions to talk about the options. And it certainly is something which is very palpable today because our patients are sicker and sicker. It's a really complex issue, and it's certainly not something that should be done lightly by someone with no experience. I mean, it's a very difficult decision whether people want to start, whether they want to continue, and when they want to stop. So, Rob, maybe you can tell us today how we should be having these discussions and training people to have these discussions. Thank you, Brian. And it's really, uh, I appreciate your introduction very much. And it's great to be back here to especially spend some time with you last night and Elaine. Um, thank you all for showing up today. Um, for me, it's a lot of snow, but actually I heard we're going to get more snow in Boston. So um, let me begin by telling you that I have no financial conflicts of interest to disclose. And what I intend to do is discuss how to identify uh, vulnerable patients with advanced kidney disease. I'm going to review the treatment options for these individuals and also talk about some communication strategies for these more challenging conversations about treatment options for more vulnerable patients. I'm going to begin with a case, uh, and this case, the arc of it, I think, really um, allows us to consider the objectives that I just pointed out. This is Mrs. L. Uh, she's 84 years old. She has stage 4 chronic kidney disease due to diabetes, hypertension. Um, she's admit, admitted now with pneumonia. About nine months ago, she decided to do dialysis if, if and when it was needed. She, however, she had a stroke about six months ago that left her with residual left-sided weakness, and now she's in assisted living. She uses a walker the majority of time, but increasingly is reliant upon a wheelchair to get her to a dining room. And she needs a lot of assistance. She needs assistance especially with bathing, but other activities of daily living as well. And in the process of this most recent uh, event, she's lost about 13 pounds. She has a past medical history of coronary artery disease. She had an MI, and this left her with uh, systolic uh, congestive heart failure. 
And now she has acute kidney injury uh, that's superimposed upon her chronic kidney disease. Her creatinine is 3.2. Just two months ago, it was 2.6. And she's complaining of some increased fatigue and decreased appetite. So these are some questions to consider as we go through this. How do you think this patient will do? What information helps inform your thinking about this? And then what advanced kidney disease treatment approach uh, might you recommend for her, dialysis or conservative care? I want to begin by acknowledging that really with this topic, uh, one size does not fit all. Um, you know, dialysis, when it, was, uh, when it was first developed, was really designed to, to restore health in people and to rehabilitate them functionally. And it still does that in probably the majority of patients. Um, and in fact, uh, it often serves as a bridge to a transplant, which really prolongs survival uh, much greater than with dialysis alone, and it also improves quality of life. So we do still deal with this large population of patients who, who look forward to better health and perhaps a transplant. But over the last two and a half to three decades, there has been this emerging cohort of patients that have a limited lifespan with higher disease burden and disability. And it's those folks that I'm going to focus on. And of those individuals, it's really the oldest members of the population who are at greatest risk for doing poorly with dialysis. At the same time, as this graph shows you, uh, it's the oldest members of our population who are starting dialysis at the fastest rate. As, as you can see, those who are 70 to 75 years of age and older uh, constitute the fastest growing group of individuals starting dialysis. And although this has slightly uh, changed a bit, it's really persistent, this trend. And these individuals are also at risk for the shortest survival on dialysis. And that's shown here. Uh, and the median survival is shown in red. And as you can see, for those who are 80 to 84 years of age, the median survival is just over one year. For those who are 85 to 89, the survival, median survival is just under a year. And it's about a half year for those who are 90 years of age and older. And of course, there's a spread here. And I think it's incumbent upon us to, to try to figure out who's in that uh, 25th to 50th percentile or below the 25th percentile. And these same investigators who produced this data looked into this as well. And these are data on survival of octogenarians and nanogenarians on dialysis. And I'm going to draw your attention to the bottom graph. And I know that it's not as easy to see. But basically, what this shows us is the importance of comorbidity in survival in these older individuals on dialysis, such that if you have zero to one comorbid condition, uh, your survival, I'm not sure this doesn't really work very well on this, your survival is much better than if you have um, you know, two to four comorbid conditions. And of course, if you have four comorbid conditions or more, you have much diminished survival compared to the other people in this cohort. And so the question is, what are these comorbid conditions that they, they examine? And they're congestive heart failure, ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, being underweight on the basis of serum albumin, diabetes mellitus, COPD, cancer, and peripheral vascular disease. 
We also know that over half of the oldest people who, who start dialysis start it unexpectedly. They may have had conversations with their nephrologist about the possibility of starting dialysis, but it often happens, as probably any of you who are hospitalists know, uh, with some acute event, an acute illness, for instance, that gives them acute on top of uh, chronic kidney disease. And of those, it's the patients who are sickest upon admission that are at highest risk for mortality and also for very prolonged admissions. Functional status also plays a role in how patients do on dialysis. And we know that functional disability is common in the nursing home population. And when I looked at this slide, I think two days ago, I thought, I don't want to get this mixed up. Uh, functional disability is common in New Hampshire population. And that may be so, but the, there's no, no offense intended here. Um, and the, the investigators asked the question, what happens to nursing home patients who start dialysis? And what they did was, they, they, this was very clever, they had access to what's called the minimum data set. And for those of you who know about it, and for those who don't, the minimum data set, when any patient enters a skilled nursing facility in the United States, they have their activities of daily living measured. A score is assigned to that, and then it's updated on a quarterly basis. So they had access to this data set. They also had access to observational data about every patient in the United States that starts dialysis, USRDS, and of course, patients who die at CMS data that we are all, as nephrologists, required to fill out. And what they looked at was functional status and death over a one-year period for this, this group of over almost 4,000 individuals. And this is what they found. And I draw your attention to three months at the top, and approximately 60% of this cohort had either died, shown in the dark blue, or in the very light color had diminished functional status. And only about 40% had maintained their baseline functional status. <laughs> Dropping down to one year, you can see that about 87% of this cohort had either died or had lost functional stat, had lost functional capacity, and only 13% had maintained their functional status. So this really alerts us to the fact that individuals who are approaching end-stage kidney disease are at risk if they have diminished functional status, are at risk for losing more functional status, and certainly for early mortality uh, if they do start dialysis. I also want to talk about some geriatric syndromes, especially frailty, because that has a bearing as well on how people do on dialysis. And frailty is a geriatric syndrome that was defined by Fried and others around 2001, and it, it's constituted of self-reported exhaustion, unintentional weight loss, weakness, by usually measured by hand grip, slow walking speed, and low physical activity level. And three out of these five usually is, is significant for fr the presence of frailty. And Kristen Johansson out at UCSF looked at a large cohort embedded in this USRDS observational data set. And she had enough information to be able to classify patients as either, these are dialysis patients with diabetes, uh, and this was uh, well over 2,000 individuals, and she had enough information to be able to classify these individuals as frail or non-frail. And what she found is that two-thirds of this dialysis cohort was frail. And 
there are other studies that have come out that show maybe a little bit less, but this is a significantly elevated number. And what she found was that it was independently associated with a higher risk of death or a higher dis risk of, of hospitalization or death. So frailty is another consideration as we engage patients or see patients who, who have advanced kidney disease. There is another way to, sort of a quick and easy way to identify individuals at high risk for mortality on dialysis. It's called the surprise question, and it's now uh, frequently used in other disciplines, especially oncology. It was actually developed by a nephrologist, Woody Moss, at University of West Virginia. And what he did was very clever. He collected a lot of data on patients at three different dialysis units, he also um, collected uh, not only demographic data, but Charlson comorbidity scores, Karnofsky functional data. And then he went to the, to the clinicians who were caring for these uh, prevalent dialysis patients, and he asked them to answer that question, the surprise question. And for those individuals for whom the answer was no, the likelihood of dying at one year was three and a half times greater than for those who answered yes to the surprise question. So this is a way of using our insight as clinicians to help us think about who's at risk or who might be a more vulnerable patient approaching end-stage kidney disease. There are also a number now, uh, I think at least six, uh, predictive models that have been designed uh, to look at this issue of mortality in dialysis patients. And I'll just show you one of them. This was designed by Lou Cohen and others at Bay State Medical Center. And embedded in it, it's a six-month mortality predictor. Embedded in it is the surprise question and then four variables that are associated with higher mortality. Age, peripheral vascular disease, serum albumin level, and the presence of dementia. And of course, the reason why I'm showing you this one is it's available online and anyone can have access to this, um, and what I want to stop and, and really acknowledge at this point is that the authors of these predictive models, the people who've devised them, and uh, people in our professional organizations in nephrology are very clear. These should not be used to say, oh, gee, I did this predictive model and you have a high risk of mortality, you should not do dialysis, or, you know, it looks like you're not at as high risk as a, perhaps I thought you should do dialysis. It's more as a tool for stratification. And what I mean by that is that using the data that I've shown you, advanced age, especially with multiple comorbid conditions, the presence of frailty or diminished functional status, or a no answer to the surprise question or a high mortality number that you can calculate using this, really is a way for us to pause and acknowledge this is a vulnerable patient. And we ought to be thinking about treatment options in a different way. So what do I mean by that? It's really going back, you know, hearkening back to what Brian was talking about before. We shouldn't be thinking about dialysis by default. We should be more intentional about it. And thinking of the options perhaps in a different way as the Renal Physicians Association and the Choosing Wisely program of the American Society of Nephrology suggest, thinking of either conservative care or a trial of dialysis. And let me just explain, conservative care is treating the patient for complications of chronic kidney disease and other medical conditions, but not doing dialysis. With the understanding that patients will get sicker, have more symptoms, especially towards the end of life, and they will need more supportive care, 
and likely hospice. That's one option. The other is a trial of dialysis. And what I mean by that, or a time-limited trial is how it's often referred to in the literature, is having a robust conversation before initiation of dialysis in which one outlines conditions for considering continuing dialysis, whether it's certain goals that the patient might have, improved functional status, fewer symptoms, whatever it might be, and also defining potential setbacks or reasons to consider stopping dialysis with the understanding and and being clear with patients that this does lead to end of life. That's one half of a time-limited trial in terms of, of what needs to be accomplished. The other half, which doesn't always happen, unfortunately, is having the second conversation and designating that time for it. So if somebody's in the hospital like Mrs. L, who's acutely ill and decides to do a trial of dialysis, it might be within days, it might be a week, uh, having the second conversation. On the other hand, a patient for whom you have this conversation, who's an outpatient, uh, if they start dialysis in a freestanding unit, it might be three months or four months or two months but a longer interval of time. But these are the options that we should be considering. I don't want to spend too much time on conservative care. There's really not a lot of data on it, to be uh, frank with you. Uh, Most of the the information comes out of the United Kingdom. There's some studies out of the Netherlands now and Australia and New Zealand. And the data is limited. It's basically um, what the authors of these observational data uh, show us is what happens to survival after people designate that they want to do either dialysis or conservative care. That's what most of these are about. And as you can imagine, the starting times for observation could be different, and we don't have information about the conversations that took place and how decisions were made. But I do want to just show you, because I think the study that I'm about to show you sort of encapsulates what most of these uh, reveal. And this is out of Hertfordshire, England. And over an 18-year interval, um, they looked at uh, patients who had stage 5 chronic kidney disease who elected to do either dialysis uh, or conservative care. And not surprisingly, median, median survival for dialysis was much greater than for conservative care, roughly 67 months versus 21 months. However, when they looked at the subset of individuals older than 75 years of age, and factored in comorbidity, what they found was that the survival advantage conferred by dialysis persisted, as you can see on the left, in that Kaplan-Meier curve, compared to conservative care, but it vanished for those who had high comorbidity. And this has been shown in many different studies, whether it's 80 years of age, 75 years of age, that with high levels of comorbidity, survival can be either greatly compromised or almost vanish with dialysis. This is another study that I want to show you, and I I show it to you because I think it brings up an important point that this is more than just survival, even though most of these studies focus on it. And this is another one that compares maximum conservative care, which is another name for conservative care, versus hemodialysis. Uh, This is also out of England, stage 5 chronic kidney disease, and then they tracked survival. And as you can see in the lower bar, survival is much greater with dialysis compared to conservative care. If you look closely, the very darkly shaded area is time spent in the hospital. And proportionally, 
twice the amount of time is spent in the hospital if you do dialysis. Now, that may not be very surprising because when you do dialysis, you're very much entrenched in the medical world and you're more likely to be hospitalized than if you do conservative care. They also looked, and it's this very lightly hatched area, at time spent doing dialysis. It turns out most older individuals, and these are people older than 75 years of age as well, do dialysis at a community freestanding unit. And what they did was they took into account the time traveling to and from dialysis units, being in waiting areas before and after, and the actual time getting their blood filtered. And what they found here is that half the survival time conferred by dialysis is either spent in the hospital or doing dialysis treatments. And I show this because I think it really goes to the issue of what we don't often talk about with our patients as they approach end-stage kidney disease are trade-offs. You know, some people might be very willing to spend more time in the medical world to get more survival time. Others may not be so excited about that prospect. And this really led a colleague and, and me to devise this table that compares sort of the burdens versus the benefits of doing dialysis in older, more frail individuals. And as you can see on the top, it can extend life, although it may not do so in a very significant way. But there could be a lot of time that's spent doing dialysis or being hospitalized. Always want to you know, hope that there's relief of uremic symptoms. And at the same time, as anyone who cares for dialysis patients knows, our dialysis patients have a lot of symptoms on dialysis, whether it's cramping, post-dialysis fatigue, or some pains of various kinds. And this is much less well-tolerated in the older individual, the more frail individual. Um, improved quality of life is something that I think a lot of people are, are hoping for. At the same time, being part of the medical world, there's often setbacks, whether it's acute illness, functional or cognitive decline, possibility of going into skilled nursing, and so on. And I always like to think about how important the social aspects of dialysis can be. I, I like to tell the story of a patient of mine, if any of you know Boston, the Coolidge Corner area of Brookline. I had an 88-year-old patient who was living there, and she had advanced kidney disease. Um, she was living in a one-bedroom apartment and really had a very isolated existence. Uh, she had, uh, her family had moved away. She had lost her community or support community from death and other people moving to nursing homes or assisted living. And her husband had died about 10 years earlier. Um, and what her days or her week consisted of was a visit to Trader Joe's twice a week and a visit to CVS once or twice a week and boarding taxis to and from Beth Israel Hospital. And so we had a few different conversations, but she really wanted to do a trial of dialysis. And what shocked me or surprised me about this woman is that she came to life. I had not known how gregarious this person was. She chatted up everyone who walked through the door. Every person knew this woman and had a conversation. They paid homage as she walked, as they would walk in and out of the dialysis unit. And it was striking, and she did really well for about five months. And then she had a, a central venous catheter infection, and things went downhill. And she decided to withdraw from dialysis. But she had earned the moniker mayor of DeVita Brookline Dialysis for a while. <laughs> At the same time that, you know, that can provide a new, rich, you know, social environment for some individuals on their non-dialysis day, they could be right back at isolation and having a lot of doctor's appointments. Um, 
So just to summarize what I've said to this point, um, when we're encountering patients uh, who have advanced kidney disease, we, we really ought to be thinking about prognosis, and we ought to be thinking about more patient-specific issues or factors, such as functional capacity, cognitive capacity, presence of frailty, for instance. And we do have some tools that help with this as well, as I've pointed out. And we do this primarily in the service of thinking about how to have conversations about options with these individuals. And we should be thinking differently. Rather than dialysis by default, more commonly conservative care or a trial of dialysis. And we ought to be thinking about trade-offs and be prepared to talk about that with our patients. Um, I want to go back to Mrs. L. And, you know, she's this 84-year-old woman, stage 4 CKD, and she's now admitted with pneumonia and decided to do dialysis about nine months ago, but things have changed. She had a stroke, uh, and she's functionally much more limited in her abilities, and she's lost some weight. She has coronary artery disease uh, and has uh, systolic congestive heart failure, and now her kidney function is worse acutely, um, and she has some new symptoms. So I'd like you to do something here, if you don't mind. Um, and the room has gotten more filled. Um, if you could turn to the person next to you and just talk for about two or three minutes about this question. Talk, try to answer this question. What advanced kidney disease treatment approach would you consider recommending for Mrs. L and why? <laughs> Conversations. I, um, I, I actually love, I love hearing, I love hearing the, the conversation. Yeah, I have lost control. Hello. <laughs> it's okay. If uh, you know, I, I hate to interrupt conversations, um, but I'm going to. Uh, so I just want to see by a show of hands, um, who here might consider. Uh, uh, dialysis. It could be a trial. It could be regular dialysis. Any hands? Okay. Good. What about conservative care? Great. So I think the reason I do this is because I think there's no right answer here. Um, this is, you know, as we think about having conversations with patients uh, that are like Mrs. L, it's really a matter of equipoise. 
And at the same time, what we really need to do is, is find out what the patient's priorities are. It's a preference-sensitive issue. Um, and that's what I'm going to turn to right now. Um, you know, what I've been talking about so far is really expertise of clinicians, especially nephrologists, but any of you, after you've heard this talk perhaps, you know, you know more about prognosis, you know about benefits, burdens of dialysis. Um, but there's another expert, of course, and that's the patient or patient with family members or family members. And they can tell us about their quality of life, their goals, their values, their concerns, and give us a lot of insight that help to guide treatment decisions. And what has traditionally happened is a more paternalistic kind of approach where you know, we as clinicians have given a pretty good download of information. Most of us are pretty intelligent and like to talk. And then we make a recommendation, often overlooking you know, the patient's expertise. And what I've observed more commonly these days, with a little bit of a nod to autonomy, is we still give a lot of information about uh, prognosis and burdens and benefits, but often hesitate to give a recommendation, um, but instead ask the patient and family after we've given the data download, so what do you want to do? <laughs> Which I would submit to you is really a very frightening thing for patients and family members. Most people do want a recommendation. And of course, we ask permission. And if they don't want one, we'll, we'll um, you know, go along with that. Uh, but this often happens now. And it, it, it's, it's a very anxiety-provoking prospect. And often, patients kind of uh, resent it. Um, but what we ought to be doing is more along the lines of what we call the shared decision-making paradigm. And this is what's recommended by, again, by the Renal Physicians Association and the Choosing Wisely program of the American Society of Nephrology, in which we bring to bear our expertise and integrate it with what the patient's expertise is to make a recommendation. And that sounds pretty easy in a way, but the conversations can be pretty challenging. And that's what I want to really talk about in the remaining time. Um, and of course, when we're thinking about these conversations, we ought to first and foremost prepare and, and consider who should be present. Many of these individuals who are more vulnerable have different kinds of impairment, whether it's hearing, vis visual, or cognitive, or any combination thereof. And so really asking who they might want to have with them for this kind of conversation. And of course, making sure that there's enough time, because these do take a more time than a typical kind of visit. Um, but I'd submit to you that if you do this kind of conversation sooner than later, it saves time down the road. Uh, because it often engenders many, many more conversations at the last minute uh, that can be quite taxing for everyone. And then, although what I'm about to talk about sounds like one conversation, I, I want to just preface by saying that, in fact, it's often more than one, it's often two or three conversations. But I did want to give you a guide, a mental guide, for having these kinds of conversations, sort of later goals of care conversations with these individuals whose, whose situations have shifted. And this is, out, this is from Vital Talk. I can see some people I know here in the audience nodding because they know this, this mental map. And I just show it to you because I, I think it's a nice way of of showing what the conversation might be like with a person like Mrs. L. And REMAP stands for reframe the big picture, expect emotion, respond with empathy, map out what's important, 
align with patients' values and plan to match values. And if anyone's interested, you could go to the Vital Talk site uh, on the internet and get more information about it. But I, what I want to do is show you how this could fit into a conversation and be helpful. So just beginning the conversation, there are some important questions to ask the patient or patient and family member. The first and foremost is what's your understanding of your health or your illness or your kidney disease so that you really have a starting point because if somebody is completely you know, unaware of something, that may uh, you know, delay this conversation and you may have more things to talk about before having this conversation. The other important ask, if you will, is uh, really asking permission. Um, and would it be helpful if I told you what I know, meaning you know, what I know about what's going on after they've given you their perspective? And if they say yes, this is the reframe. This is a moment to do a reframe. So what do I mean by a reframe? This is really giving the patient and family members a prognostic headline, a terse kind of summary of why you need to have this conversation, that things have basically changed and you need to talk about what to do next, really, is what it amounts to. So what might this look like for Mrs. L? For instance, I'm really worried about how you've been doing lately, the pneumonia, the recent stroke, now the worsening kidney function. Another way to say it is we're in a different place. I'm concerned that some of the kidney treatments might do more harm than good. And this is just a way of framing the conversation, reframe, actually. But when this happens, often patients become emotional, not surprisingly. And in a way, that's a, a, a good diagnostic sign because you know that what you've told them has had an impact. Um, and at any time during a conversation like this, patients can become emotional, will become emotional because of the serious nature of it. And emotions happen, you know, they can be manifested either non-verbally, somebody looking at, you know, a averted glance or looking sad or shocked or even starting to cry. Um, sometimes it could be a verbal statement, something like, I, I can't believe we're at this point. Um, and when this happens, emotions really happen faster than rational thinking. It's just the way we're hardwired. Um, and it's important to acknowledge these emotions. And the reason is because if we don't, uh, patients will not hear what we have to say. If you think about times when any time you might have received some you know, powerful emotional news, it's really hard to think for a while. So what we can do is be empathic uh, to be effective in helping them move through the emotion so that they can take in the rest of the conversation cognitively. And um, what we do is, what we recommend is to make an empathic statement. Uh, these can be very useful in these circumstances to help lower the emotional climate, if you will, or the temper, tem temperature. Um, so here's, for instance, an emotional, an empathic statement. It's naming what you're seeing. I can really see you're worried or acknowledging. I imagine this is hard to hear. And then after we do this, giving some time for them to just digest this, some silence. Um, there are other ways as well. There's something called a wish statement, which really helps us to join with the patient in acknowledging loss. I wish things were different. And it might take one statement like this, perhaps a few, and as we see the emotions starting to subside a little bit, um, either we can say, you know, is it okay to move on? Or, in fact, uh, the patients sometimes say, so what do we do now? And they're ready to continue the conversation. And that's where 
it's you know where things can go off the rails to be frank with you because if you don't do this correctly you might end up at that point starting to talk about the options or making a recommendation but instead this is the moment to pivot to exploring the patient's values and you know a statement like this is a transition statement to gain a better sense of what treatments might be best for you I'd like to learn what's most important to you is that all right and proceeding to ask open-ended questions. And I'm just going to give you some of the open-ended questions that, that can be helpful in these kinds of circumstances. Some of them really ask about the, the patient's recent experience, and you can get rich data from that. It's also a way to sense what their prognostic awareness is at the moment, what's life been like in recent months, what's given you joy and satisfaction. <laughs> Another is what worry, what's most important to you, and then what worries or concerns you most about your future. Um, and when we ask these questions, it's often helpful to uh, get information and then you know, make us you know, ask what else so that it can be, you, know, you can build upon what you already have. And then there are some questions that go to trade-offs. If you become sicker, how much are you willing to go through? Uh, what abilities are so critical to your life that you could not li imagine living without them? And this last one is from the Serious Illness Conversation Guide that was devised originally by Susan Block and, and Atul Gawande and others um, in Boston. And, you know, at various points, as we very attentively listen to individuals, we're sort of making a hierarchy of what, in mentally, of what they're saying, and it's good to check in to make sure that we have it right, uh, and making a reflective statement. It's reflective listening, really. And, and um, it's very powerful because patients can correct us uh, if we have it wrong, um, or they can also add on. And it's also very powerful and transformative for the patients just to, be, to know that they're being heard. And here are some kind of reflective or alignment statements. As I listen to you, it sounds like what's most important is spending quality time with your family. Do I have that right? Uh, what I hear is that you become quite concerned about being in a nursing home. Is that correct? These are uh, reflective statements. And when, and this is sometimes a bit tricky, when we think we have enough information about patients' priorities, it's time to make a recommendation. And of course, it's always important to ask permission to do that because there are people who do not want a recommendation. And the recommendation really should be incorporating the priorities that have been elicited in the conversation. Um, and I'll just give you uh, some examples of what this might look like. You know, based on your goal of hoping to see your first grandchild next year, I would recommend a trial of dialysis. Uh, alternatively, given your concerns about more hospitalizations and possibly going into a nursing home, I would advise conservative care. And for the nephrology situation in particular, if recommending a time-limited trial, remember outline in advance reasons uh, for continuation or withdrawal and identify a time for the next conversation. And if recommending conservative care, uh, ensure follow-up of the patient. And sometimes nephrologists, for instance, aren't able to be as involved with conservative care. So if there are others who might be able to assist in supporting such an individual. So some pitfalls uh, in these conversations, really not uh, letting the patient know that things have really changed, giving them a reframe, not responding to the distress that's evoked, 
um, focusing the, the decision-making on biomedical data, and making a recommendation without adequately exploring patients' priorities. In other words, being, giving a premature recommendation. So this is the roadmap, just again, reframe the big picture, expect emotion, uh, respond empathically, map out what's important, align with values, and plan to match values. I'm just going to turn in the remaining time to what happened to Michelle eight months later. She, she never recovered from the acute kidney injury that was superimposed on the advanced kidney disease. And she elected a time-limited trial, and she was discharged to rehab after hospitalization, and she did pretty well for a period of time. Uh, but then she had a couple of hospitalizations and finally was readmitted for sepsis and delirium due to an infection. And she was on, put on two vasopressors and antimicrobials in the ICU. And her son, who had been present for the conversation about a trial of dialysis, decided it was time to withdraw. And I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about discussing dialysis withdrawal and end of life with such individuals and, and the tasks that I see that are involved here. Foremost are supporting the decision, assuring comfort and non-abandonment, addressing timing, explaining what to expect, and, and of course, consulting others. In terms of the supporting the decision, patients who decide to do this or their family members, they're, they're often what's threaded through decision-making is a lot of guilt, sometimes denial, sometimes um, anger even, or resentment about what's happened. So we need to recognize that this is a really challenging kind of decision for them to make or for patients to make, you know, sometimes a lot of regret about what, what's happened and so forth. And so acknowledging it, and, um, you know, if it's, if it's a family member some kind of a statement like your mom is fortunate to have someone speak for you since she cannot speak for herself. Or if it's a patient, you've really been through a lot, I really respect your decision. Ensuring comfort and non-abandonment. I, I, this is a more personal one for me. As recently as maybe 13 years ago when I was on consult service, and the fellow said, oh, this patient is the, the team, and the, the patient had a conversation, and the patient decided to withdraw from dialysis. I often would just co-sign the note and say, thank you very much for this consult. You know, we will sign off now that we're no longer doing dialysis. And then it struck me, wow, I, I'm not really doing my job here. Um, and that there's some loop to close. And really, it's going back to the patient or family members and just signifying, however simply, that even though you might not be involved in the care, others will, and they will be there to really make sure that, that uh, your loved one or the patient, if you're talking to the patient, him or herself, will be as comfortable as possible. Timing, um, you know, for a patient like Mrs. L, um, we might expect the patient to die within hours to days after stopping dialysis and perhaps stopping other interventions like vasopressors. But for patients who are, um, you know, doing chronic dialysis, uh, there's a different time interval, which I'll get to in a moment, but it's important to just raise the issue with patients. Let's talk about the best time to stop dialysis, keeping in mind that many patients want to be able to say goodbye to loved ones or family members want others to be able to come in and say goodbye to their loved one, even if they're incapacitated or on a ventilator and so forth. Um, and, you know, what usually happens is that for patients who are outpatients who stop dialysis, the, the, uh, usually they die within 8 to 14 days, but there can be a significant range. So I usually say days to weeks. 
And then what to expect. Um, just questions to pose for patients or family members. Would it be, would you like to know what happens next so that we can see what kind of information they might want, what their preferences are? Um, and these other questions, since time is short, what are your biggest concerns? Um, some people want to hear about, you can suggest something and, and see if they want to hear about this. And also, if, the, if it's the family that's present, it's important to you know, ask them if they want to know what happens because it can be shocking or alarming to see their loved one become very confused and no longer responsive or have pain or have changes in breathing. And of course, this is a, a bit of a no-brainer is that uh, we don't do this alone, that there are many others to consider getting involved. Um, and then expecting emotion, um, another uh, situation that's filled with it. Um, and making some statements to acknowledge it. Thinking about dialysis can be scary. I wish it had gone differently. And this is one thing that I have been trying to do more recently is just making an appreciative statement to either the patient or the family. I've appreciated taking care of your loved one. It's been an honor to participate in your care. I've admired how you've handled the situation. So just to summarize, um, support the decision, assure comfort, non-abandonment, adjust timing, ask for questions and concerns, and expect emotions and respond to emotion. And just to conclude, um, I've talked about identifying vulnerable patients with advanced kidney disease and how to think about the treatment options in a different way, and then how to have the conversation with these individuals that really focuses on, on eliciting their values. And you know, offering recommendations that really integrate patients' priorities, their values, with what's clinically possible. And finally, I've gone over a few different communication skills and a roadmap for, for these conversations. So with that, I thank you, and what questions do you have? Ron, thank, thanks so much. We have time for questions. Well, there's one study that came out of the Netherlands, and it didn't show a difference in quality of life. We, I, I, I hear what you're saying, actually, and I don't know if I need to repeat it, but uh, you know, Martin is concerned about um, you know the very things that conservative care. Uh, tend to promote might interfere with the patient having a good quality of life in terms of being able to eat because they have uremic symptoms and and um, and other aspects of quality of life and with dialysis uh, at least their appetite greater chance of improving and that they will have a mercifully fast death. I can go to that last item. Um, I've seen many deaths that have not been mercil mercifully fast and, in fact, quite painful. And there's a nephrologist down in North Carolina who had an op-ed piece in the New York or in the health section, the 
uh, Science Tuesday, I think, uh, one of our colleagues about his own father uh, and his death, which was, he was even shocked at how painful it was. So I, I think there's a little bit of mythology about, you know, oh, patients just go into a nice, peaceful death with, with uremia. It might be more likely than with other illnesses, but it doesn't always happen. Going to your point, though, this study did show that quality of life measures were comparable and that patients with um, conservative care do have more symptoms as they approach death. And therefore, they really need more intensive support like hospice. And I would also submit to you that we don't do it very well here. We don't have a great experience in the United States, unlike the United Kingdom and other countries. And it is something that we should hopefully get better at. And, and it does bring up a lot of issues. So I, I agree that it's not a perfect alternative at all. I hope I've answered your question. Yes. Rob, you did a wonderful job explaining how we would get into a conversation before dialysis is started and then also with withdrawing it and also alluded to the time-limited dialysis. But where along the road do we talk to our patients who are engaged in years of dialysis? Yeah. And their preferences are probably changing somewhere. And right. I know that you're not meaning you would not have another conversation along that time, but we tend to get people plugged in and then... We don't really deal with things until it's obvious that we have to deal with it. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good question because um, patients, I, I, one of mine comes to mind that I never did a trial of dialysis. He was so robust when he started, but over the years he really started to decline and, and very recently died. And I think one of the things that I did with this individual is I introduced with during a hospitalization a trial of dialysis about continuing it. So I think there are moments in which you can introduce a trial after starting dialysis as a possibility. Martha, yeah. Um, just a comment. I thought that was a fantastic talk. Um, thank you. Um, I just want to talk about people on chronic dialysis who do decide to stop. I think uh, many people who aren't involved in dialysis don't realize that up to a quarter of patients die because they decided to stop dialysis rather than because something happened to them. Right on dialysis. And that's often because something bad has happened immediately before, right. like they've broken a limb or had a stroke or whatever, and then made a decision to stop. But it just makes me realize that patients on chronic dialysis have a really unique situation and they can actually decide when they're going to die. And patients with cancer and heart failure and other diseases can't make that decision. And it's such an interesting process. Yeah. And it behooves us to be very involved in that as we can take care of outpatient dialysis patients. And I think that we are. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Right. Oh, oh, sorry. So when you emphasize identifying the patient's values, I was curious whether you actually give the patient pre work before that visit. Do you want to have conversations coming? And secondly, do we have any information about whether people change their values over a short period of time? I mean, it's a huge load of conversation. Uh, absolutely. I mean, let me go to the second point because I think people's level of prognostic awareness changes. There's a, there's a, a palliative care doctor in Boston, Vicki Jackson, who talks about this pendulum that swings and how patients see their own situation. And what we sometimes call denial is they're, they're really just, they don't want to face what they're dealing with at some moments. And in other moments, they really are very, you know, very open about it. So things do change. And that's why I, I caution that this isn't often one conversation, that it probably is more than one. And people can change their minds as well. So yes, and I'm now forgetting the first part. Oh, 
about letting them know. It, it is a little tricky, but I, what I often do is I'll, I'll tell patients um, at your next visit, it would be great if you brought somebody in because I think we, we should be talking a little bit more about where things are going. I, I make it very vague, but I do let them know that it would be a good idea. And they can push me on it. I've had a patient say, well, what are you talking about, doc? Um, and then I'll tell them if they want to know. Oh. I noted that you um, suggested possibly bringing in an outpatient primary care doctor at the time of withdrawal of dialysis. Um, I'm wondering what experience you've had with engaging with the primary care physician or clinician earlier than that, since it's possible the primary care doc has known them for a long time and really is in touch with helping them elicit their values. No, I, I completely agree with that. And in fact, I think it's... It's really important to, and I didn't put that in any of my slides, but to check in uh, before you have conversations, sometimes even checking in with other specialists in addition to primary care if they're being cared for, for instance, for heart failure, you know, check in about what's your prognostic sense about this patient so that you really don't, you don't leave out other people who are important. So, yes, I, I agree. And I, I also want to emphasize that, these are sort of late conversations that often happen with patients, unfortunately, that we don't know as well. Um, we're about to start a little trial in Boston with patients who have stage 3B CKD uh, and for whom the surprise question answer is no for two years. Um, we're about to use the serious illness conversation guide to, to have much earlier conversations as well if they haven't already had them with their primary care doctors or others. So uh, this is what I've been talking about is later on, but I think there's a need to have these conversations, start them even sooner uh, uh, to, to really get them thinking because people do change over time, and it's a good thing to have conversations early so that they can start to, to um, you know, assess what their priorities are. Uh, yeah, sure comes up a lot uh, with the patients who start in-house. How do you carve out time to have these conversations? Because it, it doesn't seem like this should happen on rounds with 25 patients. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it often, and it's often a little bit more complex because it can sometimes involve some conflict um, because it's it can be a team meeting um, and you have to make sure that everyone's in agreement. Uh, and that can be, I didn't go into that, but that, that can be tricky. The time element is really difficult. And what I usually do is um, talk to the fellow about seeing all the other patients first and then putting time that day or the next day to have this conversation, which is not easy um, it, because it is quite time-consuming if they're in the hospital. I agree. Yeah, Clay. That, that was really fantastic, and I want to emphasize, especially for the our, our fellows, but really all the learners, that, that going back when people decide not to have dialysis doesn't release you um, as that patient's physician. And I, that's really meaningful, I think, to you and the patient to go back. But I wanted to come back to that table that, that you created about the burdens of dialysis or the, the benefits, because one of the things you say is that you're going to be dialyzing for three and a half to four and a half hours, three times a week. And, and I don't think really we should commit our patients to that. Unfortunately, in dialysis, we're, we're the most heavily regulated 
and scrutinized uh, aspect of medicine. So people come to the dialysis unit and they say, this patient is not achieving adequate dialysis. I don't even think we should be measuring adequacy in such patients whose goals are to survive until their granddaughter is born. We should dialyze them whatever is necessary to relieve their yeah. symptoms, which might be once or twice or three times a week for two or three hours with a catheter and not submit. Any, anyway, that's... I'm no, sure. I, 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 there, there is... Um, uh, there was a very controversial paper that came out, I think it's now about three years ago, from Vanessa Grubbs and colleagues from the ASN Dialysis Committee on, on palliative dialysis, which is what you're talking about. And, and it stirred tremendous controversy with this whole notion that for certain individuals, we shouldn't be doing what you're saying, measuring their phosphorus. Why measure phosphorus? What, what difference is that going to make? Or, or why are we using such stringent blood pressure levels? And what about time of dialysis and so forth? And the counter argument had, that came up was, well, these patients are going to get sicker and you're going to actually undermine their quality of life. And it, it just, uh, it, I, I think that was one paper that really engendered a tremendous amount of controversy when it came out. But yes, what, you're, what I hear you talking about, there's also um, a move afoot to consider starting patients, and especially patients who are maybe more vulnerable, on very, uh, very slowly on hemodialysis you know, in a way that you can maybe maintain their residual function longer, shorter durations, um, and, uh, and, and see if they want to be moved up in the amount of time that they get dialysis. So, so there are some, you know, creative ways to do this. Unfortunately, as, you're, as you say, we're being dinged for not following uh, the, the letter of the law, if you will, um, about measuring all these, these outcomes that are really very poor outcomes like phosphorus level and so forth. So... Rob, thank you very much. Uh, I, you've pointed out how difficult this decision is, and this happens every day in the hospital. And I think we really, you've given us some really good tools to try and deal with this, but just realize this is a work in progress, and, and uh, we yeah. all need to, 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 to continue to get better at this because uh, it's what's best for our patients. Yeah. Thanks again for coming. Oh, thank you.